John 14, verse 1, words of Jesus, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where, I'm, where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on, the account, of the, on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, we pause one more time and ask for your help. There's some weighty truths in this chapter, and there's a lot of things that we can't say and can't deal with in the next half hour. But there are important things that you want us to see so would you help us to see great and glorious truths in your word and then live in light of what we see. So help us now by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So John 14 is a chapter that's had a massive, I would say, I think it's fair, massive impact in my life. And if I were to ask you, probably if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and you've read your Bible, it's probably true for you that you're, they're your favorite verses. When we look at the Bible, there are those passages that kind of stand out. There are certain passages in the, in the Bible that, that make a, a bigger impact on you than maybe some other passages. So at the very beginning of the service, I mentioned uh, uh, the First Chronicles and, and the genealogies. I mean, you've got like eight, nine chapters of just genealogies and the descendants of Saul and the descendants of David, and you've got the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. And, and um, I don't know anybody in here that, that would say, you know, those have been the chapters that have made the biggest impact on my life. Are those genealogical chapters. Uh, and so maybe, maybe they have, and that's amazing. I, I would actually love to hear that story and how that works. But, but we, we go to the Bible, and we believe all of it is God-breathed, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it comes from Him. We don't believe that men were sitting around in a cave one day and, and in their own power, and because they were really smart, they thought, well, I have this brilliant idea that I'll begin writing Genesis, or I'll begin writing the Gospel of John. We believe they're carried along by the Spirit, right? So 2 Peter 1.21 for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So all of the Bible, we agree, is God-breathed. All of the Bible comes to us from God through man as they're moved by the Spirit. So we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. It's one of the bedrock beliefs of us as a church, that the Bible is the Word of 
God. And while the world that we live in teeters and totters and looks in vain for some standard of truth or outrightly denies the existence of objective truth, Christians hold high the Scriptures and say, Thus saith the Lord. So the Bible for us is inerrant. That means it has no error in what it, mean, or what it uh, wants to teach you. Uh, it's infallible, which is a word that means it will never lead you astray. It will never lead you into unrighteousness. So inerrant, infallible. It's, it's sufficient uh, to lead you to love God and love people and, and lead you into righteousness. The Bible is sufficient and it's completely authoritative. It is the very words of God. It is the word of the King. So you should see your Bible as this this authoritative word that stands over your life. Uh, there are some, even this, even, uh, this week, there, there was some debate that I saw on social media between some particular Protestant theologians who, who some over here on this side were saying, well, we, we, the authority over us is God, and they were trying to, di uh, to, to dissect a little bit God himself from his word, and some other theologians responded said, one guy with a, maybe it was a little snarky comment, but it got to the point. He said, well, if, if my wife sends me a text message and I read it and, and I don't do what she asked me to do and I get home and say, babe, I love you. I just didn't want to listen to the text message. That probably wouldn't go well when you got home. Or if, uh, if I tell my kids, Calvin and Caleb, say tomorrow when you wake up, uh, I'm going to leave a note on the table and tell you what I want you to do for the day. And I get home after the day's over and they say, Hey, Dad, we love you, respect you, you're, you're our father and we want to honor you. We just don't like that piece of paper. Things probably wouldn't go well for them at the end of that day, right? So we look at the Bible and this is God's word to His church. So it's inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and completely authoritative. It's how God rules His people through His word. And so we believe that about all of Scripture. That's my point. Every verse from Genesis to Revelation carries the authority of God Himself. But some passages, some passages in the Bible for each of us stand out. So recently I was uh, looking at... Um, Oh, I'm not going to go there, but if you go to Second uh, Chronicles and you have, uh, in chapter 20, you have Je Jehoshaphat, right? Here, here's the king and there's this, this horde bearing down on Israel. There's the armies that are, that are uh, arrayed against them and they're coming for battle. And, and Jehoshaphat and, and uh, the, the Israelites are like, we're not sure what to do. So they go to the temple. They go to seek the Lord. And in chapter 20, there's this, there's this verse where they say, we don't know what to do, but our eyes... Are on you. I love that verse. It's been a it's been a, a verse for me for the last two weeks. It's like I, I don't know what to do in certain situations, family situations I'm facing, or or church situations I'm facing, interpersonal relationships that I'm facing. I'm not sure what to do. I, I don't have all the answers, but my eyes are on you. What what a verse for you. What a, what a verse for you to take into a world with all the complexity, all the things that are going on, all the things that you can't answer, and you have this king of Israel who doesn't have all the answers, yet his eyes are on God. So that stands out. I'm trying to memorize Philippians 3, where Paul talks about, he counts everything as loss. Everything is loss and counts them as rubbish so that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from a law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So here's these verses that are meaningful to me right now that are reminding me that my righteousness before a holy God is not dependent upon what I do. 
It's not dependent upon works of the law or reading my Bible or going to church, that my righteousness is found in Christ, right? So that's particularly important, right? That's a massive point of theology. And so Philippians 3 is precious to me in these days. So you all have these verses as I'm talking. There, there may be verses popping off in your head like, oh, that verse, I, that's the verse. I keep going to it or, or this verse or that passage or this figure in the Bible that stands out that God has used in some amazing ways to help you and to guide you. So over the years, I say all that to say this, over the years, John 14 has been one of those passages in my life. This whole chapter, and there's so many things in it that I'm like, we could just spend a month here. There's so many things in this passage that I want us to see. It's been one of those chapters in the Bible that I keep going back to over and over and over again. So I want to give you just four things. We're going to deal with two of them in the sermon, but give you four things that are in this chapter that have made a massive impact on my walk with Jesus. So I'm going to mention these four, and then we'll deal with only two of them, the rest of the sermon. But the first one, and this is one we're going to deal with, so I'm not going to belabor the point here, but the first one is verse 6. Verse 6 is probably a verse you hear it, you read it, you know it, you can memorize it, you can recite it. The exclusivity of Christ, right? There, there's no other way for you to be saved. There's no other way to the Father than through Jesus Christ. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit in just a moment. But then, verses 15, 21, 23, and 24, massive for me. I grew up in a, in a context where, or, or I guess when I was, first, not growing up, but when I, growing up as a Christian, when I first became a Christian, I was 22 years old, and there's lots of debate about, uh, you know, whether, you know, Christianity is a religion or a relationship and, and all that verbiage, and, that, and there's, there's a lot of truth in, the, in that, uh, those words, but, but, but a lot of the debate tended towards Jesus just loves you, and there's, nothing, there's no law, there's, there's nothing to do, you don't really have to, there's nothing to obey, just, it's just kind of this love, everybody loves each other, and there's, there's nothing. To, to obey when it comes to King Jesus. And, and that just didn't fit with John 14, right? John 14, 15. You have, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so here, love is prior, right? Love is the main thing. If you love Jesus, if He's the treasure of your life, what's going to happen? There's going to be something that flows out of that. There's going to be something that spills out of a heart that's delighting in Jesus. Namely, you're going to obey Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So again, love is prior. You, you, you've been given a new heart. This is Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Deuteronomy 30. You have all these passages where God's pointing to a future where He's going to give His people a new heart. He's going to cause us to walk in His statutes. But it's all flowing out of a new heart, new affections, right? You're bent to Jesus. You love Jesus. And out of that love for Christ, there's a life of obedience. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then these promises, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our, and we will come to him and make our home with him. I think that's spiritual presence. The Spirit comes and lives within you. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. There's the contrast. You don't love me? You want to know who doesn't love me? Look for someone who doesn't care about what I say. 
And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so for me, John 14 was just this massive answer to a lot of questions that friends of mine were asking and and dealing with. Uh, You know, do we need to read our Bibles? And and, and we talk about obedience, and we shouldn't really talk about obedience because that's Old Covenant stuff, and that's the law. And then I'm reading John 14, I'm thinking, well, Jesus, Jesus seems to say something else. He seems to say, if you love Him, you'll obey Him. And the Christian life is one that's meant to love Christ and walk in His way. So John 14 was massive for me in that, those debates. And then, verses 3 and 18, you have this idea of the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus. He's not leaving us as orphans. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. So here, here's Jesus saying, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. This is, this, is, this is what we're longing for. This is what some would call the blessed hope, right? We're, we're hoping in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're hoping in the return of our King, right? You've seen the Lord of the Rings, right? Or the return of the King. We're hoping in that. We're hoping that our King will come back will deal with sin fully and finally and usher us into a curse-free kingdom. Verse 3, he's telling his disciples this amazing promise, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back. Verse 18, he does it again. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And I think that's him sending his spirit, his spirit's going to dwell in us, and then also, I'm going to come again. So that... Those three things, exclusivity of Jesus, this connection between love and obedience and what that looks like in the Christian life, and the return of Jesus, not leaving us as orphans, and then the last one, the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, and this is the second one we're going to unpack, so I won't spend long here. Verse 26, but the helper, the parakletos, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. He will come to you. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. And then, interestingly enough, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I think that's the Spirit. The Spirit comes. He reminds us of the Gospel. He reminds us of Jesus. And there's a peace that follows. So those, those four things, and there's some others, but those are four things, four reasons, four uh, issues that come up out of John 14 that have been massively significant to me. The exclusivity of Jesus, how I think about love and obedience, the fact that Jesus is coming back for me, and the fact that He is helping me by the power of His Spirit. So John 14 is a place to dwell, to spend some time. So this morning, though, I want to focus on the first one and the last one. That exclusivity of Jesus, and second, the help of the Spirit. And the first one, what, here's what I hope you see. See that the way to the Father is through the Son. And then, while we live on this earth and await the return of the Son, we are not alone, but have the Helper. So I want you to see these things. The way to the Father is through the Son. And while you're waiting on the return of the Son, you have a Helper whose name is the Spirit. And so if you see these things, here's what I hope happens as you see them. You're convinced. So see it, and then I see it, and here's what happens. I'm now convinced of my need for Jesus in my own life. So we're going to see it, and then be convinced of your need for Jesus, and convinced that your neighbors need Jesus.
So you yourself, yep, I need Jesus. He's the only way to the Father. I'm convinced to myself. You know what? It means my neighbor needs Jesus and the nations. And then you're convinced of that, so hope it moves you to cling to Jesus as your only hope. And then despite your weaknesses, last thing that you leave here hoping in the Spirit and His help. So that's where we're going. A lot of things that I want, the, want God to do in our life in the next few minutes. Show us some things, convince us of some things, lead us to cling to Jesus and hope in His Spirit. So, here we go. So immediate context of this chapter, uh, emotions are amped up. When you come to John 14, 1, the emotions are running high. Right? Judas has gone out at night. He's set to betray Jesus. And Jesus is talking about going away. If you go back to chapter 12, verse 30, or uh, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 33, you go back there and this is what you read. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I, as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I'm going away. So I've been walking with you, talking with you, three years ministering alongside of you. You've seen me do all these signs and wonders. It's been amazing. We've healed people, lame people have been leaping for joy. The blind see, the, the mute speak, the deaf hear, water is turned into wine. Amazing things. And I'm going away. And you can't come. So that raises the bar. Peter's not having any of it. He's like, no, 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 no. I'll go with you and I'll lay down my life. Lay down my life for you. I'll go wherever you got to go. And Jesus says, listen, man, you're not. And before the rooster crows in the morning three times, you're going to deny me. So now you have the leader of the disciples who's going to deny Jesus. He's going away and he's already told them that one of them is going to betray him. So you can feel the, the tension in the scene. And so you get to chapter 14, and it's just palpable. You can feel this. And so if you look at your little uh, number there, 14, just take that away, because this, these aren't added, chapters aren't added until about the 13th century. And so you don't even have this. You have one story flowing through here. And so that you just feel the tension, and then, oh, the words make sense in 14. Jesus speaks into this. He speaks into the, His disciples' lives as they're troubled, they're anxious. They're amped up. They're worked up. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So what he does is he calms them. He speaks a word. He, he pastors them. He shepherds them. He loves them. He knows their world is falling apart. He knows that there's tension. He knows their anxiety. And He calls them to trust. He calls them to calmness. So let's look at what else He does here. In the midst of this peaceful assurance that He's bringing, He tells them a couple of things. One, the way to where I'm going, Thomas, is through me. I'm going to the Father, and how you get there is through me, through the Son. Let's look at what he does. So let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If it's not true, would I have said it? Would I have told you? Would I have lied to you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I'm going away. You can't come now. That's what they should hear. Not you can't ever come. Not you'll never be with me. You can't come now. But you will be with me. Isn't that comforting right now? In our moment. You're not there yet. You're not, you're not physically in the presence of Jesus. New heavens, new earth. Look around. This is not it. Praise God. <laughs> not it. But that doesn't mean it's not a future reality. You will be there. I'm going to get it ready. I'm going to prepare for you a place. And Jesus wasn't saying, I'm going to go to the new heavens, new earth, and, start, and I'm going to go to 84 Lumber and start building your homes. He's talking cross here. I'm going to go and prepare a place. And how does he do it? I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to pay your debt. And when you believe in me, you're going to get my righteousness, this great exchange. I take your sin, you get my righteousness. And then one day, you'll be in my kingdom. I'm going to go, and get, I'm going to, go to do that. I'm heading there. I'm going to the cross. But in the midst of this anxiousness, Jesus calls his disciples to faith. So in this unsettled world that we live in, and oh, what, I mean, the last two weeks, pretty unsettling, right? Everybody's panicked. Unsettledness. And Jesus knows what to do. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be anxious. Sounds like 1 Peter, doesn't it? You know 1 Peter? Go to 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Throw them all over there. All your anxieties, all your fears, all your worries, all the things that you're struggling with. And we are an anxious people. We are a people who worry about things. That's what we do. Some of us do it better than others. And there's this word that comes from Jesus. Don't be troubled. There's these words that come from Peter. Cast your anxieties on Him. Why? <laughs> Why? Because He cares for you. He cares for you. You can take your worries, you can take your fears, you can take your, take your anxiousness, and you can say, Jesus has got this. He cares for me. What he's calling his disciples to is faith, belief, hope in God, trust in Christ. And this is basic Christianity, believing. When the world is falling apart, when your circumstances are unsettled, hope in Christ. He's leaving his disciples, but they don't need to worry. He's going to prepare a place for them and he will come Again, and that encouragement is meant for you and for me. This call to hope. So he's speaking into this situation. They're unsettled. He calls them to faith, calls them to believe, calls them to trust him. And then what happens is it leads to some question and answers. So Thomas asks something or Philip says something. Judas, not Iscariot, says something. Thomas uh, is where we're going to focus. I just want to tell you, if you look at what Philip says and Judas, I'm not going to focus in on their questions, but just by way of highlighting them, Philip says, Father, show us the Father, 
uh, and Jesus answers, I've shown you the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You believe that? One God, three persons. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father's like? Pick up your Bible and read about Jesus. You see Jesus, you see the Father. Philip, I've already shown you the Father. Then Judas, not Iscariot, different Judas, says, Jesus, how are you going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? You came for the world, right? You came to, to save the world. Uh, I can, you came to seek and to save the lost. You're going to draw all kinds of people to yourself. Why us and not the world? I thought that's the mission. And I think what he says to him, if you read the whole thing, this is what I think summary of the rest of the chapter. If you'll live in obedience to me, the world will see me through you. So why are you not going to show yourself to the world? And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to send my spirit to live in you. And then you love God and you love neighbor. And in you they'll see me. Isn't that what we find in the attitudes? Let your good works shine before men and they'll give glory to you, your Father who is in heaven. Their eyes will be turned from you to him. So I think that's what's going on in the rest of that chapter. But I want to hone in on Thomas. So go back to verse 4. Verse 4. Where I'm going, you can't go, but one day you'll come with me. And Thomas said, we do not know where you're going, Jesus. You are wrong. That's, that's not what you want to say. You, you missed it here. You, you, just a little misstep, no big deal. Just wanted to let you know. We don't know where you're going. And if we don't know where you're going, we can't know the way. And Jesus says this verse that you've probably memorized and you've heard me quote hundreds of times, maybe not hundreds, a lot. I'm the way. How do we know the way? I'm the way. <laughs> I'm the way. I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This comment by Thomas is, again, one of the basic tenets of faithful Christianity. That the only way to be saved, the only way to reconciliation with the Father, the only road to heaven goes through the Son. That's the only one. There are a lot of ways you can get to London, Kentucky. And you've never been there. Well, Dustin has. He's not in here. But there's a lot of ways to get there. You can get on American Airlines uh, or, or Delta uh, and fly. You, you, can, you can drive from here through Wisconsin or you can go through Iowa uh, a lot of roads, right, to get to wherever you're going. You can get a lot of ways to get to my house. Uh, you, you could take a couple of different roads. You could walk. You could ride a bike. A lot of ways. But when it comes to the Father, there is no other way. I'm well aware that that's not politically correct. To say that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, is not popular. To say that we have the truth, that Christianity is the only right religion, is not where the winds of the world have blown. And yet the most loving thing we can do is to hold up the truth. And so one of the things that I hope we never waver on is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. No matter where the world goes, no matter where the winds blow, no matter the 
no matter the consequences that may come, the most loving thing we can do is stand firm, not waver when it comes to the world's need for Jesus Christ. You don't, we don't do that because um, we're prideful. We don't, we don't do that because we're hateful. We don't do that because we're stubborn. We, we do this because we love. Love drives this. Love drives us clinging to Jesus and holding up the gospel and fighting for the truthfulness of the good news. Love drives us. The most loving thing we can do is point people to what God has said about the ultimate reality they face. And so we don't do it um, being jerks. Uh, we don't have to be offensive, right? You don't, you don't have to be offensive. You don't have to be a mean person. But winsomely, with love and through tears, we proclaim the need for Jesus Christ. It is not loving to know the truth and to hide it. It is not loving to know the truth and to keep it secret. It is not loving to know that judgment's coming and you've got the way of escape through Jesus and you just don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. So, we hold up this truth that Christ is the only way and the implication of saying that Jesus is the only way to the Father is that all other roads lead to destruction. That's the implication and I want you to understand the implications of what we're saying. It means if Jesus is the only way, then every other way leads to destruction. So we believe in everlasting sorrow and everlasting joy. But there's only one path to everlasting joy. And His name is Jesus Christ. Every other road leads to everlasting sorrow. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith. And if you read Romans 1-4, through 4, it's faith in Jesus Christ. And through faith in Jesus, what do we have? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Not an inward, subjective, fluffy, I'm at peace type of thing. This is objective reality. You were at enmity, it's over. You're at peace. You and God, here through Jesus Christ. Now that leads to some inward peace, doesn't it? But that's Paul's point. There's peace. No more enmity. You're at peace with the Holy God. Only through faith in Christ are your sins forgiven. Philippians 3, I just quoted it a minute ago. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Man, that in Him is massive. Two words, massive. Either you're in Adam or you're in Jesus. You don't want to be in Adam on the day of judgment. You want to be in Jesus Christ. In Him, not having, and if you're in Christ, guess what? You don't have a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Jesus is the only way because Jesus is the only one who's paid your debt, and Jesus is the only one who's perfectly obeyed God and whose righteousness you get when you believe. Nobody else has done that. Nobody else went to the cross and bore your sins. Colossians, right? Colossians 2, the record of debt that stood against you has been set aside, having been nailed to a cross. Nobody else did that. Jesus did that. He's the one who paid your debt. And then Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. Do you know why He had to do that? Because somebody has to be faithful. 
There has to be a faithful covenant servant. God made a covenant with Israel. They broke it. God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. They broke it. God made covenants. People break them. Nobody has obeyed until you, until you get to Jesus. The true Israelite goes to the garden, into the wilderness. Serpent slithers in. You heard this before, right? You've heard this before? That's a picture of Eden. Serpent slithered in. Adam and Eve didn't kick him out. Jesus does. Depart from me. He's faithful. So when you believe in Jesus, His perfect righteousness charged to your account. Nobody else has done that for you. Only Christ has paid your debt. Only Christ has been perfectly obedient to the Father. You believe in Him, sin's forgiven, righteousness yours. Christ is the only way. So the application, if all that's true, and I believe it is, and I'd stake my life on it, certain doctrines you wouldn't die for, right? Not dying over baptism, but I'll die for the gospel with the help of the Spirit. Therefore, if Jesus is the only hope, two things, two things, believe. It's your only hope. Believe. Come to faith. Here's the good news. Everybody in here, it's offered. God stands. Here it is. Believe. It's free. It's free. Believe in Jesus and be saved. Don't stiff arm Him. Don't reject Him. Don't walk away. You don't know what you're going to catch. You don't know who you're going to hit on the road. You have no idea. Believe. It's held out free of charge today. Believe in Jesus. Cling to Him and you'll be saved. That's the first thing to do. The second is to preach the gospel. So you've got the good news and you should share the good news. Preach the gospel to your neighbors and let's link arms to do it among the peoples of the world. So that's number one. Jesus is the only way to the Father through the Son. All other roads lead to destruction. Therefore, believe in Christ and call others to do the same. Number two, with the help of the Spirit, live faithfully while you wait on Jesus' return. All this talk about believing in Jesus and preaching Jesus and living in obedience to Jesus, that's daunting. So there's a way to think about all this that puts a burden on your back. There's a way to think about it that, that puts a heavy rock on your back. And I'm not, I don't want to do that. I don't want you to walk out of here with a burden. Like, man, I've got to conjure all this up by myself. Nope. All of this, believing in Jesus, sharing Jesus, walking in obedience to Jesus, you don't do that in your own strength. Spirit. God does this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yep. Read the next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty. You hope in a God who's working in you. And He does it by the power of the Spirit. We are weak people. We are weak people. But one of the most comforting things that Jesus does in John 14 is remind His disciples... His future return and His present reality. The future return we've already talked about. He's coming back. Verse 3, verse 18. 
But while we wait on that, while you wait on the return of Jesus, we count on the promise of the presence of the Spirit. Verse 25 and 26. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Note the promise here. He's going away, but He's not leaving you alone. He sends His Spirit to live within us. He's our helper. What a great word. What, what an idea. God of the universe, my helper. I think we think if somebody's a helper, they're less than. We tended to think that way. Don't think that here, right? Wrong. This is the God of the world, your helper. Your helper. He's here to help you. He's coming alongside of you. I'm reminded of uh, Romans 8.26, where the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So here you are, living in a world full of sin and shame and suffering and pain, but you're not alone. The Son of God has sent His Spirit to live inside His people. The Son of God has sent the Spirit of God to live inside the people of God. And amazingly, what the Spirit does, here's the work of the Spirit. He reminds you of Jesus. This is what He does. He magnifies Christ. That's why I think John the Baptist and John the Apostle, we talked about last week, they're Spirit-led men. Because what are they constantly doing in their life? John the Apostle writes this gospel, but he never names himself because he's not worried about himself. He wants you to believe in Jesus. John the Baptist is saying, hey, listen, I must decrease, Christ increase. John, they're all going over there, and he says, good, behold the Lamb, go over there. I think they're led by the Spirit. So, Jesus sends His Spirit to help you live faithfully. And here, I'm going to take just a little bit of liberty and stretch this idea. The Spirit comes, and what else does He do? Now, you don't find this in John, but the whole Bible's telling one story. So, if you go to 1 Corinthians, here's what else the Spirit does. So, flip over there. So you're living in this world, it's hard, complex, but He's not left you alone. Sends you the Spirit, reminds you of Jesus, and He does something else. He gives gifts to the body. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. I'm waiting because I hear pages turning, which is great because in our age nobody turns pages anymore. You just scroll. It's fantastic. So he sends the Spirit, and there are gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, lots of different gifts. Same Spirit, one Spirit. Lots of gifts, one Spirit. Varieties of service, same Lord. Variety of activities, same God, who empowers them all and everyone. To each... So if you're a Christian and you have the Spirit, you have gifts. You have gifts. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why do you have gifts? For the common good. For the upbuilding of the church. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Now, when you read these, 8 through 12, just so you know, I think all of these are available. All of these are for the church today. All of them. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, 
to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, all available, but He gives each one individually as He wills. Can't conjure them up. Can't make them up as you go. God gives them. They're available. Which means, if you flip over one more page, chapter 14, all these gifts, the Spirit's come, He's helping us, He's reminding of Jesus, He's giving us gifts. Pursue love, 14.1, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So if the Spirit's helping us, and one of the ways He helps us is to remind us of Jesus and give us gifts, then we should pursue them. That's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So the Spirit comes and He helps us. He helps us by reminding us of Jesus. He helps us by giving us gifts. So here is Christ. His disciples are troubled. And he speaks a word of comfort. In this world you'll have trouble. Don't be troubled. Hope in God. Trust in Jesus. He is for us. He has prepared a place for us. He has redeemed us. He calls you by name. And he will return for you and bring you home. Until then, in your weakness, boast. In your weakness, find strength in the Spirit that God has supplied. As the Spirit uses gifts to build up His body and reminds you of Jesus Christ.